Welcome to the After Dark Podcast with Anthony James and Conrad. Episode 10, Edge of Tomorrow. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hello and welcome to the After Dark Podcast. I'm Anthony James and that's Conrad. Hello. That's him. Well, you might have noticed this week we are not doing dark. No. Wait, hold Wait. I know I said I was going to make a joke about this bit and I've already, I've already screwed it up. Let's <laughs> rewind that. We're not. <laughs> do you want to do it again? No, that's fine. Let's carry on. All right, okay. The listeners, the listeners will understand. This is, this is raw. This is ready. Yeah. This, we're, we're, we're going here. We're going. Join us as we journey inside the bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, this is the first time we've done anything on this podcast that isn't dark related and we've already went off the rails. <laughs> Yeah, well, like I already, like literally, the what the one of the first things I said to you was like, "Oh, it'd be funny if I make a joke about how <laughs> I thought we were doing dark and immediately forgot." So we're off to a good start. Which is hilarious because we never actually talk about what we're going to say in the intro, and the no. one time that you did, yeah, it just completely didn't work. Every everything is off the cuff, and yeah, well, that that goes to show me don't don't plan things ahead of time. Just let it flow. Exactly, exactly. Right. Anyway, so. Just to sort of get the formalities out of the way, subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to keep up with today with the podcast every week. Usually we're doing dark episode by episode, the Netflix German TV show. If you haven't seen it, start watching it and you can go along in our podcast with it. Um, Conrad has never seen it before and he gives his thoughts on it. This episode, however, is going to be a bit different. But before we get into that, can you please subscribe on the audio podcasting apps? That would do us a huge favor. Give us a little review. Five star wouldn't go amiss. <laughs> Apart from that, I think we can get into our first ever non-dark podcast. Woo! Yeah, let's do it. Oh, let's break it down! This week we're doing uh, the film Edge of Tomorrow. Now, Whoa. I had never seen this film before, uh, and Conrad had. And when we, we, were try- we were trying to come up with a film to do that was similar, in, sort of in the same realm as dark in terms of, you know, something to do with time in some way. Um, so this is that. Uh, so, Conrad, what made you want to do this film in particular? Um, well, I think it's it's quite a light-hearted um, take on time travel, which it makes it a bit of a departure from Dark. But it it has it has some similarities in its kind of, I suppose, and it's it's um, there are there are some like darker moments in it, which which make it slightly slim, similar to Dark. But it's also just a good movie. It's sort of like um, Groundhog Day meets starship troopers and i like both of those movies so and uh you know so i i felt like thematically it's appropriate and it's it's a it's a good ripping yarn yeah i think ripping yarn is the perfect thing to to use for that like the film is uh if you didn't know is a film starring tom cruise and emily blunt brendan gleason bill paxton and it's about a soldier who basically gets told that he needs to go and fight on the front lines against an alien species that has invaded the earth and now he's, I think actually Conrad, he, what I gained from it, he usually is like a recruiter for the army. He's yeah, he's like, a, he, he's like a kind of a former advertising agency man who joins the army when the alien invasion happens because his firm goes bust. So he's kind of established as a scumbag um, early on yeah, and, yeah. and yeah, kind of recruits for the army without ever having seen active combat. And then wouldn't you know it, he ends up getting thrown into active combat and dies. <laughs> Yeah, and like to be honest with you, at the start of the film, Brendan Gleeson is like the uh, the general, 
and and uh, and he, Brendan Gleeson fits fits the role of a general very uh, well. I, I I had forgotten that Brendan Gleeson was in this, and when the film starts, it's sort of like okay, like news articles or news stories about uh, about aliens. Oh, and then you mean sort of... exposition, exposition? exposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like news exposition, and then stuff about aliens, and then wham, Brendan Gleeson on the screen being as Brendan Gleeson as he possibly can. Yeah, uh, I was very I I love that I saw Brendan Gleeson in it, but the first thing I thought of whenever Brendan Gleeson the the general came on the screen was oh my god i can't wait to see him in that in that film where he's playing trump soon have you seen the have you seen the trailer for that no yeah he's playing trump he's playing trump yeah oh wow so, so i think it's called like the comey rule or something that's the you know james comey there was a whole thing about him he yeah used to be the head of the fbi or something like that yeah <laughs> any american listeners can correct me if i'm completely wrong but uh he he came out and sort of wrote a book and stuff and apparently like it's there's a whole We'll have to watch the film to find out exactly what happened. But it was a whole thing with him and Trump where Trump was demanding loyalty. Um, yeah. No, so well, it seems really cool. But Brendan Gleeson as Trump, the reason why I bring this up is because, to be honest with you, I knew eventually they were going to make a film where Trump was going to be in it. And I always thought to myself, who would be a good Trump? The, one, the person I thought was going to be, a, who I thought should be Trump is, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Octopus from Spider-Man 2? Oh, um. Uh, Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he would be a good Trump, but, but I just <laughs> everyone watching this right now, go and go, pause the podcast and watch the watch the trailer for the Comey Rule, and literally just watch it to see Brendan Gleeson as Trump. Alfred Molina would need about thirty pounds of prosthetics to look like Donald Trump. <laughs> it's like a... Donald uh, Brendan Gleeson like has has the look at least. Yeah, he does. He does. You're right. I think it was. I watched a film. Um, actually, a, a film about time travel. Actually, but I can't actually remember anything else about it. Oh, what, uh, starring Alfred Molina. Oh, well, he was in it. Yeah, um, he was a cop. Uh, it was a recent. It was a recent film about a. Uh, about a, I, 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 I know I can remember I can't remember the title so no matter what I say it's just gonna be leading you down a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. but, but it made me think Alfred Molina would make a good Trump but anyway Brendan Gleeson's in it and he's he's the general and it was just it was funny to me at the start of this film straight away Alfred Molina Alfred Molina no <laughs> he got him on the brain <laughs> so tr- uh, Trump i.e. Brendan Gleeson the general he he basically just right away before you have any I, any chance to get to know tom cruise as a character is just saying right you're going to war tomorrow yeah he seems like a well i mean they both seem as bad as each other to be honest you know like tom cruise or or uh, what's his name bill uh, i've forgotten his surname now i've got it written down bill, bill or william bill cage oh william cage, like bill yeah. cage yeah or bill cage is um you know he's introduced flying in to whitehall like with his hat over his eyes looking like he really <laughs> can't be bothered with today and he seems bad and then Bren- brendan gleason who as you say it, it's kind of always lovely to see him in a movie because he's a really good character actor um you know he he always he, you always know what you're going to get with brendan gleason it's normally always good and he can do anything from bloody agamemnon through to like calvary the so guard, he's he, the guard. yeah or the guard yeah he's got a lot of he's got a lot of range as an actor so it was lovely to see him in this and he just kind of kind of plays a disgruntled general who is absolutely convinced that what he's doing is right yeah yeah exactly um and you know it turns out he was right to send uh send william cage in because if he didn't all, yeah, you know, exactly it was all part of his master plan exactly he knew what was happening but uh just just to sort of put a bookend on this first section just to let you know the film in terms of how successful it was it it did make a profit but uh, it's considered widely to have not done as well in the u.s as it should have 
Um, it had a budget of 178 million and 100 million of that was on advertising. Now, uh, it made 370 million worldwide. I think it made around 100 million uh, in, in the USA. So that's a huge amount coming from worldwide profits. Now, yeah. this is why I mentioned that. Whenever the film came out, it was called Edge of Tomorrow. And because it was seen not to do as well as they wanted it to at the box office, they actually took the tagline, live, die, repeat, and they blasted that on all of the advertising everywhere for the DVD release. So live, die, repeat is what they started. It started looking like it was called that. Now, the director, Doug Lemon, uh, or Lyman, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. As, I think it's Lehman. I'll um, say, okay, Lehman. Yeah. So yeah, Doug, Doug Lehman, who we'll talk about in a moment, I'm sure, when we talk about sort of his past work and things, he and the other producers have always said that the, the name is Edge of Tomorrow. It doesn't have a different name. Live, Die, Repeat is just a tagline. However, if you now, the, on the DVD case, Live, Die, Repeat was actually on the spine. As well yeah. as that, if you go to the, the uh, like Amazon Prime is where I watched this on uh, this time. It says Live, Die, Repeat, colon, Edge of Tomorrow, as if Edge of Tomorrow is the subtitle. Yeah, they they really fussed with the with the the title of this, and it's it's weird for them to do it um, after it's had its release and what is kind of expected to be its major market, i.e., North America. But oh, yeah. yeah, for whatever reason, they did, and it just makes it incredibly confusing um, when you talk about this movie because it's called different things in different places. And you know what, no, Conrad, what's even more confusing <laughs> is is that even though they claim still that that isn't the name of the film, Live Die Repeat there's a sequel coming out called <laughs> live, die, repeat and repeat. Oh, okay. I didn't actually know they were making a sequel to this. That's, uh, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's got some, uh, sort of die hard with a vengeance, uh, or, or die harder <laughs> vibes to it. I've, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of a sequel that doesn't put the name, uh, put the, uh, the, just a number at the end of it and instead tries to do something uh, weird with the, uh, with the title. How's yeah. that going to work? I guess they took the aliens turn up again, or maybe we're going to their home planet this time. Who can say? Yeah, going to their own planet, plant yeah. our own Omega. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's gonna be interesting to see. Um, the the general cast of this as well. There was a lot of sort of prominent actors throughout the ensemble. I mean, they had a couple of English actors, like there was a guy called Tony Way, and also Noah yeah. Ta Noah Taylor as well. Tony Way is uh, he plays in Game of Thrones the. Uh, Sir Dontos. Yeah, Sir Dontos. I was wondering if you'd spot him. Yeah, and then there's also Noah Taylor. Ta sorry, Noah Taylor. He plays the doc Dr. Carter, you know, the one who they go to to sort of get the map yeah. of where the Omega is. He yeah, I couldn't remember his character's name from Game of Thrones. I, I can't. He, he works for the Boltons. I remember that much, but I can't remember actually remember what he was called. Yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember either. He's the one who is uh, credited with uh, cutting Jamie Lannister's hand off, so... Yes, yeah, yeah. He's one of he's one of the um, no, I can't even remember it. Like it's too it's too long in the past for me to remember that character's name. But yeah, he he works for the Boltons and he's a real piece of work. But he's not yeah. in this. He's just a nice northern scientist. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that that made me think that this must have been shot in England or in London because all of these like in, uh, English uh, character actors are popping up in the cast. And you know, I was exactly right. It was shot in Leavesden Studios where. Uh, Leaves in studios where Harry Potter was filmed. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, up yeah, near, that would certainly I think it's make up sense. Near, up near Watford, north northwest London. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. Um, it's got a great cast as well. I mean, I, I I am a big fan of Emily Blunt. I think she's amazing in 
pretty much everything she's in. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, like most recently, most people will know her from A Quiet Place, but uh-huh. uh, she did um, Sicario Lu- before Lupa. that. Which, was she in Looper? I don't remember her in that. It's been yeah. a while since I've seen Looper, to be fair. But, yeah, she um, was. She was in Looper. She was in the Adjustment Bureau. Yep, she was in that, and um, and yeah, uh, Mary Poppins Returns as well, which uh, you know. I actually didn't see Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah, you know, I I liked that movie. I feel like it went under the radar for a lot of people, but I I enjoyed it. It it was you know when you get the guy who directed Chicago to make a Mary Poppins musical starring Emily Blunt, Lin Manuel Miranda, and Ben Whishaw. To me, you know, you're doing all right. That's 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 some yeah. good casting and some good yeah. people involved. I need to watch it. I need to watch it. Like I, I'm obviously, it's a childhood film of mine, Mary Poppins. So I'd like to yeah. watch it and see how they did. Um, just before we sort of kick right into high gear in terms of talking about the plot of the film, um, Doug Doug Lehman, did you are you aware of Doug Lehman in the past, the the director of this film? Did you? Uh, yeah. So he he directed um, a movie in the '90s called Swingers, which I, yeah, was okay. kind of like I think really where Vince Vaughn kind of got his break and it's mm-hmm. it's funny actually if you look at if you look at the kind of technical stuff on this Doug Lehman did I mean he's done that other stuff as well but Swingers is what I knew him from which is quite different to this movie or very different um, from a plot perspective but just genre as well or, or tone but then yeah. it's also it was written or co-written by Chris, Christopher McQuarrie who did like so that's an Oscar winning um, writer they've got there because he did mm-hmm. The Usual Suspects and then the cinemato- cinematographer is Dion Beeb or Dion Beeb who did uh, who won an Oscar for Memoirs of a Geisha so like there's, there's a ridiculous amount of talent like working on this film yeah in front of the camera and behind yeah like yeah and to be honest with you whenever conrad asked me to watch this i i generally thought oh, it's just going to be like a general tom cruise action film and you know what it is but at yeah, the same, it is. but at the same time it it did feel like it did feel quality like it, it felt like it was doing what it wanted to do really well yeah, yeah I, I just i just feel like it you can feel making a movie is difficult and it's really easy to balls up even like a relatively sort of standard action movie which to be honest this kind of is uh if you take away the con- the sort of time travel conceits at its um at its core but mm-hmm. it's it's a good example of how to do that really competently uh, and you know it's it's easy to see how they did it competently because there's talent up and down the the movie Exactly. Um, I just wanted to point out one of uh, uh, Doug, Doug Lehman's previous films that I don't know if you've seen and I haven't seen it. In it's going to be Jumper. No, 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 no. I'm, okay. not, I'm not even going to mention that. <laughs> Mr. Blankface Christensen. Um, I, I don't like sand. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> uh, in 2017, he directed a film called The Wall. And uh, in the, the Wall, it's about like two snipers who like are shooting each other from either side of a wall, right? Okay. But um, it, it has a... I know I never heard of this film before I started like looking at Doug, Doug Lehman's uh, career, but it prominently features John Cena. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I, I maybe want to check that out now. Considering John Cena is going to properly go... Even though he's already a huge star, in terms of films, he's probably going to go into the rock stratosphere uh, after the Fast and the Furious 9 coming out soon. Oh yeah, and I'm sure he's after. I'm sure he's after some of that. Uh, some of that rock money. Yeah, yeah. Considering how much money, uh, this is probably going to make me some some uh, or, or earn me some pissed off comments. But The Rock has like is yet to really make. Uh, he's made a couple of decent movies, but he somehow managed to become like the highest paid male star in Hollywood despite making nothing but garbage movies. Yeah, it's true. Um, San Andreas. What, what were you doing? Like, um, I'm sure we can, we can do a podcast on the rocks films one day. <laughs> yeah, finally, we can talk about Welcome to the Jungle. 
yeah exactly welcome to oh geez okay um so all right so it, the film is about uh, as we said tom cruise's character william cage he goes to, into combat now they're, they're going up against an alien race that is called are called the mimics and they are really we're going to talk about we'll talk about the mimics like sort of design later on but they're they're sort of a really cool squid like alien yeah and obviously this is terrifying for william cage and he sort of isn't able to do anything he gets plopped down uh the the, the the there's like a great performance by like a by a master sergeant uh farrell uh, who's played yeah. by bill paxton and he's bill paxton is sort of chewing the scenery he's just so over the top you know yeah he's kind of i feel like he's channeling i can't remember the name of the actor now which is really annoying but the guy who played apone in aliens uh, which obviously bill paxton was also in i feel like he's kind of channeling that performance there yeah, and, yeah. you know turning up this brilliant drill sergeant um performance yeah and he's just so over the top and he he sort of takes uh he he takes william cage sort of and makes it in the beginning i actually thought that he was listening to to cage and i thought he was thought he was going to actually uh actually going to you know take cage away and sort of listen to him but he actually just went yeah no you're going into war as well like everyone seems <laughs> yeah. to know this guy and just be like no you're going to, you're going to war and they're all seem to be crossing their fingers that he's going to die too <laughs> yeah yeah they're all which to me the the sort of uh combat rigs that they're equipped with which by the way seem like an absolutely terrible idea because they don't do anything like everyone dies the moment one of the mimics attacks them anyways so they it's might as well a, not wear a gun yeah, yeah so you might as well just give them a gun and let them be quicker on their feet because that suit does nothing um but uh yeah they, that those also seem quite expensive which so i, I think, they, I think they're able to jump higher and run faster and stuff as well but yeah, yeah and they can they can land like um uh from like higher falls without you know it damaging their legs or whatever so there probably is a reason for it but um but yeah this opening is great it has um it has that kind of starship troopers vibe to it where you feel like there's there's just these sort of you 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 zoom in on a squad of individuals who we get to know over the course of the movie but there is this sense that it's just people getting thrown into the meat grinder um which uh which i'm a big fan of in something that's that's i i don't i don't feel it does it as as kind of effectively as starship troopers does where that really really nails that sort of satire of uh of a sort of military dictatorship um that this doesn't really get into but the the, the same kind of tones are there yeah yeah cool exactly so uh cage actually gets shipped out and when they get shipped out they're actually flying from england um and they go over the cliffs of dover as well um did you notice that the, the cliffs of dover appear yeah like they're going out over, over the cliffs of dover and over to france and in the scene where they land in france it is obviously a direct uh call back to uh d-day Port normandy yeah. yeah yeah d-day and even to the point where i felt like maybe not it wasn't obviously nowhere near shot for shot but i felt in terms of the thematics of it they they were drawing from saving private ryan in a big way yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, the the way it's shot predominantly is quite low down to the ground, um, sort of focusing on the individuals, which gives it a sense of scale um, and kind of puts the puts the viewer in the in the heart of the action in a way that, mm-hmm. that you don't get if you kind of shoot from above. Although they, they do a couple of like helicopter shots, but it's it's really it's really well done and it's it's kind of there's a flow to the to that action sequence. Um, which which gives it a lot of impact in in you know when you see people that you've just met dying particularly before you know what the time travel uh, loop is or where the time travel loop is going to come into it you know mm. you're seeing these characters you've just met just biting the dust and um 
yeah it, it, the, the way it's edited is really smart because it allows them to return to the scene over and over again you get to learn like the bits yeah. that are coming before they, you get to them yeah exactly and i i really liked as well they sort of they they tried to do something like a little bit sort of stylistic but like in okay so what they tried to do for a long time they didn't show us the aliens yeah and I, like so you could think about like that like the the a quiet place for example that didn't show the uh the monsters for like a good hour and a half where and then and then you think about the uh dunkirk which i don't think any, i don't think in dunkirk there's one nazi appears i don't think you see a nazi yeah, once so. in the whole of dunkirk so in, in edge of tomorrow i was like thinking oh they're not showing the aliens oh cool this is cool so for the first like 10 minutes and then even like five minutes of this first action sequence there's no aliens and then, then it's like all of a sudden they were like, right, we've done our little stylistic, not show the aliens thing. Let's just show them all the time now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they 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 kind of cash in that check pretty early. Yeah, to be cashed, honest, yeah, they cashed it in pretty early. And I was because I was like, oh, this is really cool. Are they going to do this? Because it seemed like they were avoiding showing them. And then just and then just like a minute later, it was like, no, here they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'd like and th there's normally two reasons for that either the the design sucks so you have to kind of figure out smart ways of not showing them to to hide the bad design or it's done to you know create a sense of tension but here they don't really ever get into the, the there is one scene where a bit later where they get into the sort of more horror elements of maybe like an alien or something like that but for the most part it's just like now nah, we're just gonna have these things charging around the place ripping stuff up and being really loud yeah, exactly. And to be honest with you, that scene you're talking about later on in the film where they're sneaking uh, through Paris, that jump scare got me. That's all I'll say. Yeah, it got me big time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, there are definitely a couple. Yeah, like like Paris and the and the dam in Germany. Uh, that you, that you know the they make them very dark and and use a lot of negative space in the way it's shot. And it, it they can do it. Like they definitely you know they they are able to leverage that tension to make it scary again. Um, but uh, yeah, they do it pretty pretty sparingly. Okay, so I'm sure the listeners can realize we're delaying and delaying the talking of the loop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it in a minute, I promise. But I, before we get there, I want to talk about Emily Blunt's character for a second, just in, in terms of the way we're sort of introduced to her. Yeah. In, in, Emily Blunt's character is called Rita, and she is sort of the big main superhero, if you, if you, for a want of a better term, of the army. She's like the, the head, sort of like the best killer of these aliens, and she's a hero of a battle. Uh, previously, I can't actually remember where the battle previously was. As Verdun, the Angel of Verdun. Oh yeah, Verdun. Yeah, she's the Angel yeah. of Verdun. Yeah, and she is this badass sort of warrior who yeah. carries a massive blade. Yeah, she gets a sword, and for some reason. Yeah. So, I, uh, so the blade made me immediately think. I was like, this is like Final Fantasy. Like, it's literally like that. <laughs> that thick. It looks like, like a, a Buster sword. Yeah, it's huge. And then that made me think. Like, is this? This is just reminding me like of an anime. And then I looked it up and this is actually based on a manga. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, it's, it's based, on, based on a manga called All You Need Is Kill by... <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. By Hiroshi uh, Sakurazaka. Okay, I've not heard of that, but that's uh, hilarious as a, yeah. as a title. And I mean, yeah, she's... There, there are definite... Um, there, you know, there's definite kind of anime qualities to this in terms of like mech suits with shoulder mounted missile launchers yeah, and yeah, yeah. chopping up aliens with swords um yeah but you get the, the way she's introduced is great you know she comes across as a, as a badass in just the way she's presented and all of the guys in her squad have those like full 
uh, face masks with like skulls printed on them just to let yeah. you know that they're that they're the real deal. Whereas her squad are just a bunch of jabronis um, <laughs> who who get oh, that that one guy. I can't remember the actor's name now. It's uh, Tony Way. Um, yeah. When he gets into his suit completely naked because he says <laughs> he needs to breathe, that would that would chafe so much. Like you're just there's raw metal there. Like you're. Yeah. you're you need something between you. Like we learned that in the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, a bit of chainmail or something at least. Yeah. But, yeah, but uh, I, I just love, and I actually looked up, uh, I, read, I did a bit of reading about the film. The reason she has a blade is because apparently that's because, so you, you find, it, find out whatever happens to William to make him loop, which we'll talk about in a minute. She is looped in the past as well. And apparently she has a blade in the manga it doesn't mention this in the in the film, but in the manga, apparently she has a blade because she realized when she was going through the loops that it was more convenient to have a weapon, a melee weapon that didn't have to be reloaded. Yeah, well, I think the the um, the aliens they do appear to have some kind of ranged weapons, but they definitely prefer fighting up close, which does beg the question why they use kind of infantry as much as they do it would make more sense to just have a big you know big old wall of armor although i guess the the aliens could tear up tanks as well but um yeah have have something between your infantry and them to stop them immediately getting into melee range yeah exactly and i'm just picturing her like every time she's trying to use the the sword and just like going through it it's like okay left swing right swing left swing then she dies it's like okay next time i'll do left swing right swing left swing and it's like it's like she's like learning how to solve a rubik's cube yeah, yeah, she's yeah. like learning how to play a, a, a song or learning a, learning dance moves. I guess is a, is a, a the, the the perfect way to to describe it. Exactly. Okay, so whenever William Cage gets plopped down onto the onto the beach, he actually uh, ends up being in a way cornered, or he gets he ha- basically has to kill one of the the mimics. Yeah, and it turns out that the mimic he kills is a special mimic called an alpha. That's only one in 6.8 million of the mimics. And when he kills it, the blood of the alpha, which is really cool. It's like, um, it's, it's like an oil acid. And it, when it falls yeah. on his face and, he, and it kills him, he wakes back up back in the morning where Bill Paxton is the drill sergeant again. And he sort of has to relive the day. So it turns into a, uh, a Groundhog Day situation where he gets to keep reliving the day because because this alpha's blood leaked on him, he sort of leached the power of these aliens. Because it, it turns out that these aliens actually had power themselves to restart the day each time. And that's how they kept getting the upper hand on the humans. So now Tom Cruise or William Cage has this power. And he can keep resetting the day and keep having a go at it. Um, what did you think? Of, what, what, what's your general thoughts on this, uh, Conrad? I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting conceit as a sort of a way to... Um make the film more than just a kind of generic sci-fi aliens have invaded the planet kind of yeah. um kind of movie and it, it it makes it it gives them a lot of room to have some some comedy in the first half of the movie as well and i think you can tell that the for me the the best part of this movie is the first half when they're doing the the gra- the sort of lighter more groundhog day style stuff of him learning how to do things and dying yeah. in really funny ways rolling underneath the van yeah exactly like rolling <laughs> underneath the van or like breaking his leg when emily emily blunt is trying to teach or rita vataski i should say is trying to uh teach him how to sword fight and just shooting him in the head like a horse yeah. <laughs> like it's like that stuff is all there's a lot of a lot of humor in it and tom cruise i will say this for him I, i'm not 
I think with Tom Cruise, you get what you pay for. He he can do a certain thing. He's not a bad actor, but I think he, he's a he's a sort of limited actor, and you need to put him in the right role as yeah. as like a leading man. But for in this, he he does a really good job of playing his part pretty straight and letting letting the plot and other characters kind of make fun of his situation and and sort of get some get some humor at his expense. Yeah, um, and not only that, I thought he did it. I thought he did a good job of acting incompetent, which he doesn't usually do. Yeah, yeah, he he's very he he like is willing to kind of be made fun of here, which is something he's he doesn't always strike me as being willing to do. Obviously, Tropic Thunder is the big example of one one role where Tom Cruise just mm-hmm. kind of went balls out. I'm going to be ridiculous in this and and uh, like look unattractive and be be stupid or or, or be a character that's completely uh, completely out of left field for me. But for the most part, I feel like he's quite protective of his brand as sort of Tom yeah. Cruise TM, the leading man. And and this this was a little bit of a departure for that, which I really respected yeah yeah I, I thought it was great as well um so some of those uh I, I you mentioned there the idea of emily blunt just shooting him in the head and killing him i that that came back a number of times like oh we'll just reset because they could they could reset the day by killing him so basically yeah. he has he has to die every day i thought that was so such a cool idea because immediately i was thinking to myself how weird like i don't think i've seen that in a show in a film or a show before where someone's intention is to die yeah um, it's pretty cool. But uh, I thought to myself, every time Rito was shooting him in the head and resetting the loop, I was having a, a mini existential crisis. Because <laughs> I, was, I was like, hang on a minute. If I was her, would I shoot him in the head to reset the loop? Because I, in my head, I'm like, okay, so once you pass that, that point in time that it's going to be reset to, are you the same consciousness as you're going to be re- reset to or a different consciousness? Like, are you all of a sudden going <laughs> to, are you going to wake up and just not remember the, the day that has happened but hasn't happened? Or are yeah. you actually a separate being now? It really freaked my head out. Well, I think these are the kind of ethical questions that, that uh, whereas Dark wants to kind of get into these ideas, yeah. Edge of Tomorrow simply doesn't have time for that bullshit. And, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like, don't, and I, I think, going back to what I was saying before about the first half of the film to me being by far the best half is that in the second half they do start getting into that a little bit with like Tom Cruise kind of you can see like in his performance and in the writing the the fact that he is having to watch uh, Rita Vitaski die over and over again is getting to him um, and um, it, it, does, it doesn't not work but I felt like it feels like a bit of a tonal jump from the first half of the movie where it's just like, lol, he's just going to get a load of stuff wrong and die. And it's going to be a great fun time. Um, But so that's, I mean, it it does, it does shift at some point. And I I, I suppose they could have gotten into that kind of existential, oh my God, am I, is it going to be me at the start of the previous day when I kill you here, there, and they don't do it, which maybe they should have done really. Yeah, they could have they could have mentioned it in a way like yeah, they did get quite deep later on in terms of the reader stuff, um, but uh, in terms of the actual reveal that we are looping. So whenever he gets killed the first time with the oil on his head, and then or like the the blood on his head, I should say, and then he get then he dies and he's reset. I and then it's like Bill Paxton's in his face straight away. Yeah, personally for me, I felt this part was a, a little bit rushed. I thought the first reveal uh, of the loop was very it, it it read to me like you've all seen the trailer yeah yeah this is a time loop show let's just get let's hurry up and get into it you know it didn't actually let us dwell for any amount of time on the sec in that second loop 
I, the second loop was really rushed to me and it was very much just like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Let's go quickly, quickly, quickly. Let's not dwell on it, you know? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I, I suppose it, like structurally, they probably just wanted to get to the bits where he's, you know, get to the comedy where he's doing things wrong and dying as a result of it. Yeah. But yeah, they, they don't spend a lot of time um, kind of exploring the enormity of discovering that you have died and been uh, and been effectively born again um in in like anything like really they don't they it's not in the script it's not in the performance by tom cruise it's just like he, he has that what like like you say that one loop where he sort of is is a bit like oh de- de- what's going we, on yeah <laughs> and then after that it's like right fine time is looping we'll figure this out later (laughs) yeah exactly yeah so it's a bit like that having said that the way that they did the loops in general i i really enjoyed like uh i like the those little little subtle hints in 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 costume and stuff like in the first loop when he fell down his visor of his suit broke off his sec the second loop is he he sort of knows he's going to fall so he's able to correct himself a little bit and the only difference when he fell really was that his visor didn't break this time like so there is little little things that they're doing there which, which makes it really really cool i liked as well that sometimes like whenever he was he was trying to escape to go and find uh rita he was like uh, they were doing push-ups and he rolled underneath the, the truck <laughs> I, I love that he died and then it just showed him trying to do it again so then he rolled underneath the truck again i like that it wasn't until about 20 30 minutes later in a different loop that we saw what bill paxton and the rest of the fellas were doing in that loop whenever he rolls away so yeah. we see, you know, we, it, it reveals little bits as we go through, um, which is really cool. I really, I really, really, really like that. Um, in terms of the loops in general, I, I, I thought, I, I thought from the start, um, and then I also had this sort of, I looked it up and apparently the, this is why the guy wrote it. Like the guy who wrote the manga, um, yeah. he wrote it with this in mind, but I definitely was like, this is just like playing a video game. You know, yeah, I mean, like, it has a sort of Dark Souls quality to it, where it's sort of resetting each time, each time you die, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's and I looked it up, and the manga, the guy who wrote the manga, actually came up with the idea from that idea, the idea of okay. dying each time in a video game and it keeping going until you beat it, um, which I thought was really great. And then I, I thought I that met, that led me to thinking like Rita then is kind of like your older brother or sister who has already beat the game. Yeah, and can guide him through. Can guide you through, yeah. Well, and I'd like, and that is, there. I have to say, for Macquarie's screen, uh, screenplay, that like it, it's very. There's not a lot of fat on it. Like it gets the job done um, in mm-hmm. terms of guiding you through. It's talking about Rita Fataski being like kind of a character to, to guide you or like kind of give you little hints as to where you need to go next. She's normally the one who's given them, but you know, her figuring it out immediately that he's in a time loop and saying, come find me when you wake up is the first of many kind of little, little um, moments from her that are thrown in that hint at the next thing that's going to happen. So like, she's the one who like points out the MacGuffin thing that they can stab into his leg later on in the movie. Like, and, and she's the one who points out like the visions or mentions the visions. And she's the one who mentions like blood transfusions. Um, taking the power away from you um and that yeah yeah, so she is kind of she is kind of guiding him through the experience with uh, some of the expository dialogue that she gets um but it never feels maybe it's emily blunt just being great um but it never feels sort of heavy-handedly uh like exposition to me it normally feels quite in character for her to say these things yeah yeah it it was great and like i don't think the film suffered for uh the general action movie of like 
oh, that didn't work. Hey, did you know that we have this other thing, which uh, yeah. we have this transponder that we can use? Oh, oh, why didn't we mention this the first time? Oh, it doesn't matter about that. Um, we have yeah. a transponder. So uh, like it, the film doesn't suffer for that, I found. I didn't, I, I, even though I, I noticed it, I wasn't yelling at the screen, you know, why do they have this now? I, yeah. I just, it, it, it's, it was great for me. But um, also the idea that uh, he was having vision. So basically he then... Uh, they find out that there's a hub of the alien species called the Omega, which they have to destroy. And that Omega has been able to reset time. And that's where the aliens have always had the upper hand. So the Omega, if they destroy, uh, find and destroy the Omega, then they can destroy all. It's kind of like the Night King of the, uh, of the, of the mimics. <laughs> yeah, you kill, like, they can't figure out a way to explain how they kill all the aliens in a two-hour movie. So, so you, kill, you kill the big one and all of the aliens die. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Except in this film, the character who had built towards killing the Omega actually kills it. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> little, little, little jibe at Game of Thrones. Eh? But, <laughs> but uh, so as they're sort of on this mission to, to, to find the Omega, there's a really cool t- turn in the story in that um, it's revealed that Cage finds out that there's no way of actually finishing the job that Emily Blunt's character, Rita, survives. Uh, yeah. And I thought, I love this scene when they go to like the, the barn or like the, the farmhouse in France somewhere. And like uh, that they sort of, he wants to stay the night and stuff because they have a helicopter and it's, and, he, and it's revealed. Like, this is one thing that they did really clever in the, in, the, in the film. And this is, I wasn't expecting this level of cleverness in the film in that we'll see them do something for the first time except Tom, I keep saying Tom Cruise, William Cage is sort of commenting as they go or even just revealing later that he's already done it a load of times. Yeah, I love that I, we didn't see the first time he was doing stuff. Well, yeah, and I think it, it kind of plays with, um, with its own scripts in that way. So you're never, particularly in this long stretch here, which is probably like in France, which is probably the longest scene if you can call it that it's a sort of collection of scenes really but the longest stretch um of of fairly long scenes in the movie mm. it kind of plays with that idea of like oh has he done this before do like you know or is this the first time that, yeah. that he's that he's doing this and yeah as you say i, I think i don't want to give the impression that i didn't like the second half of the movie because generally speaking i think this is a is a really fun movie i think the first half is more entertaining uh to watch but certainly like this little stretch um gives William Cage and Rita Fataski time to kind of get ex- like expand on their characters, get to know one another, and it, it it's it's a, basically essential to the end of the movie. Really, like if yeah. you didn't have this bit, the end of the movie would be robbed of pretty much all of its depth because, or robbed of all of its impact. Because let's be realistic, the other guys who come with them at the end of the movie, you barely know anything about them. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, this uh yeah i i i th- this little little stretch in france reminded me a bit of um of a quiet place actually obviously it came before a quiet place but it had that same kind of yeah feeling I, of driving through a sort of abandoned countryside i i i actually i made a note that it reminded me of children of men so basically yeah. same idea yeah but it's yeah this this is one one of the stronger despite the second half not being not appealing to me as much as the first this is probably the strongest set of scenes in the whole movie i think the the stuff in france yeah, it's just a, it's, it is definitely a tonal shift from the start of the film, uh, that's for sure. Um, there was also sort of a little bit of like a 50 first dates thing kind of going on. 
uh, <laughs> where uh, T- Tom Cruise was sort of like getting a little bit more information out of Rita every loop. And uh, yeah. it seemed like he was actually lying about like her middle name and stuff to try and get her to tell him so he would learn stuff for the next loop. Actually, that, yeah. brings, that brings me onto something, right? This, okay. is, this is a hilarious idea. So how, what did you think like, was like whenever they went to the general to get the MacGuffin, which to, yeah. st- to stab in his leg um, and they, and everything went well. And the, the secretary came in and he starts naming the secretary's like date of birth and like her middle name and her, yeah. her, her husband's friend's name is this. I thought to myself, like, was there literally a loop where William Cage went and he just like quizzed this woman on her life? <laughs> you know? well, I mean, we don't know how long that loop lasted because I think I'm trying to remember where it was, but I think in an interview with the writer of Groundhog Day, they asked him how many loops Bill Murray's character went through, and they, and he and he said something like it was the equivalent of like a thousand years that he spent like trying to get his relationship with Andy McDowell right. That's so crazy. there's every possibility that you know William Cage lived for thirty years as this woman's best friend and confidant, yeah. and like learned <laughs> learned yeah. learned everything there was to know about her and her husband for this just for this moment. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea. <laughs> Yeah, he, like, he fell in love in one of them with her with her daughter or something. Given Tom Cruise's penchant for dating women like fifty years younger than him. Yeah, exactly. And even if actually, I read I read as well that uh, Tom Cruise uh, recommended Emily Blunt for the role because he'd always wanted to work with her. And I was like, yeah. I don't know why, but action stars, whenever they say they really want to work with a female actress, I'm always just like, oh, so you want to kiss them at the end of the yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> see right through your plan cruise <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah so i've just forgot my notes here how did cage find out the secretary's birthday yeah so yeah. <laughs> i love the idea of him just like moseying up to her and like you know being best mates with her for 30 years yeah cuts forward to them both like in their 70s and him like sitting by her bedside for her 70th birthday presenting her with like a book that she loves or something <laughs> that's probably what the sequel will be about yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a completely different plot that's great um okay so what in terms of the mimics we can talk about like the mimics in general the aliens yeah um in terms of the design what what did you what did you think of the design uh i think i think they're pretty good like i I think um a lot of alien design in modern sci-fi movies can be quite lazy it's like oh they're kind of black skinned with like slimy bits and Mm -hmm. like they have some kind of glowy glowy eyes or something and the 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 design here does fall into a couple of those tropes but i think yeah. the sort of the the things that really stood out to me are the um the sort of way they move is very kind of squid like which is cool yeah. and the effects they put around the sort of air around them when they're when they're communicating to each other where there's kind of a distortion effect on like the air around them like they're emitting a shock wave which i thought was really cool too that is cool yeah. um, so yeah, I, I thought they I thought they were pretty good, um, generally speaking. And the and the Omega is great and looks horrible. So yeah, the, in terms of the the big bad like that, they they nailed that as well. It looks a bit like a Venus flytrap kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I thought the design was sort of akin to sort of the Matrix Sentinels in yeah yeah in uh, in the Matrix, like crossed with maybe a bit of the in- Independence Day alien crossed with a huge squid you know there was, there was a lot going on it might surprise you to know that uh, Guillermo del Toro actually worked on initial designs for them uh, oh, and the, re- the reason why that will surprise you to know is because they clearly don't look like a Guillermo del Toro uh, monster um, and that's because they didn't use any of his designs oh 
that's, that seems like a waste of Guillermo del Toro's talents. Although I don't actually, does he design his own monsters? I, I don't know whether he he oversees the design. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think yeah. Oh, I I I look a director like Guillermo del Toro. Definitely, I would I would think that he's an artist in some way. He might like I, I'm sure he if not he, he at least he thinks like an artist. So I'm sure he's able to really put across to his uh concept artists exactly what he's looking for and stuff like that so yeah yeah well i, I feel like um his creature design generally speaking has been a bit more i, I suppose this isn't actually true of pacific rim but um <laughs> in like shape of water and pan's labyrinth it's a lot more pulpy which yeah. maybe wouldn't have worked with this movie but I, I would have been really interesting to see what he designed for that actually whether it had been kind of whether it would have been notably different because yeah in, in pacific rim they're kind of I don't know they're, they're not very distinct the designs in Pacific Rim they're just big pointy sort of dark skinned monsters basically yeah but also Guillermo del Toro said uh, Pacific Rim was one for you and now I get to make one for me which... <laughs> and then he went off and made the shape of water yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> finally I can have an amphibian man have sex with a with a with a woman a human <laughs> yeah. woman yeah yes, he's living his whole life for that like um but also they they also threw in the idea of a hive mind in a way it was kind of like yeah. they, they were kind of hive mindy which is also obviously another I think that's become becoming to, to a point where you could say that was a trope of alien films um, yeah but I think it's 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 an easy in to ending the movie in a satisfying way. Like you don't have to have some explanation for how killing the, the big monster uh, ended the invasion in a single stroke um, because you just say, yeah, he killed it. And because they're all connected to the same nervous system, everything dies at the same time, which I'm prepared. I, I just accept that now these days. <laughs> it's like, okay, fine. I, you don't need to show me an extra half hour of people going through fields with flamethrowers, getting rid yeah. of all of these, getting rid of all these things. I don't need that in a movie. Shut them down. Yeah. <laughs> like all you need to do is just kill the one thing. But um... that, that is a point actually. Why did they did they not use flamethrowers? That feels like it would be perfect for these things. You just create like a wall of fire in front of yourself, and they maybe they don't care about fire. Yeah, actually, we didn't see their interactions with fire really at all, did we? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that would have been a way to, way to go. But um, yeah, so as the film goes on and he figures out how to do everything and fi they're finally able to solve the Rubik's Cube that is, that is this uh, alien race, how to kill them. They find out, of course, that the uh, Omega is in the, uh, is in the Louvre in Paris. Yeah. Uh, of course it is. Um, yeah, obviously, like the, the aliens have to have a sense of, uh, of a dynamic and uh, an exciting setting for a final confrontation. Yeah, I just, I just thought of like, you know, like a Dr. Evil in, in, in the mountain in a, on a, a volcanic island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did, how yeah, did they, they hide in like the most obvious place possible? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but they obviously, once they find out exactly where it is, uh, Cage actually loses the ability to loop time. Yeah, um, they, that was always going to happen. Over. Because there needed to be stakes. There needed to be stakes yeah. for the end of the movie. Like the whole way through, it's great and all. Like when you're like when you're playing a video game, you're never you know you're you're playing like I don't know the Last of Us. You're not thinking that you're gonna you sitting there on the couch playing the game is gonna be turned into a a zombie. So. <laughs> They they actually um I think it was Hideo Kojima the guy who uh, made uh, Metal, uh, Metal Gear Solid um did actually have an idea back in the PS2 era for a game where once you died a certain number of times the game the disc would self destruct. 
So that's about as uh, there's a reason why that game was never made, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, either way. So. <laughs> but uh, that's probably as close to this as 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 we could get in terms of the video game metaphor. But yeah, the they have a they have a sort of I guess it's like a little spy movie kind of section. It's quite fun, like you say, the scripts in this this bit when they're in Whitehall with him like calling everything that's going to happen. Yeah, that's and cool. Then, uh, and then the training wheels come off, and uh, and we have stakes, as you say. Yeah, the stakes. So then what they have to do is they have to go to Paris one time only. There's no loops anymore and they have yep. to kill the Omega. Um, now, when they're in Paris, they, they eventually, they, they, they manage to get, uh, is it J-Squad? I yeah, they rope the J-Squad yeah, they jobbers get, they, into they, it. Yeah, they rope the jobbers in. Job squad. Job squad. <laughs> <And> <laughs> they, they bring them along. Um, I, I, I audibly burst out laughing. Uh, whenever the guy like I, I don't watch action movies every day but I've seen enough of them to know the tropes and whenever the guy was like you go I'll buy you some time right yeah. <laughs> I audibly laughed out loud <laughs> yeah I wrote I wrote down time for noble sacrifices are us here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they didn't even achieve anything like they literally didn't delay them in the slightest they just blew themselves up yeah it was exactly. pointless I also I loved before this when they're actually flying into Paris um the pilot of the of the vertebird or whatever the hell those like four rotors helicopters are called he, he's just some random guy like he hasn't had any lines and i just love the fact that they just wrote some random pilot into this just so they <laughs> can have someone they like almost there in military speak and then immediately <laughs> die when the when the thing is shot down yeah because the j squad was too was was, was they, they were too strong a characters to get rid of in those moments yeah, you know, they, well, they, yeah, they couldn't thematically figure out why they'd have a pilot in the squad, I guess, like, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or logistically rather. But um, yeah, that, this this whole bit, I understand why they had they wanted to get like a supporting cast in, but I felt like these characters were. There's not. I I, I I'm going to say that they're two dimensional. I don't know how you felt about them, like, but definitely, a, well, especially especially the uh, the token woman of the group. Oh yeah, the, w- the woman who's tougher than you might expect from a woman. Yeah, like, and, which and is she... like the most lazy characterization possible. And, uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't understand a word she said. Yeah, she she had a, a very she had a thick draw. draw yeah, but I I mean, there's nothing. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this now. There's nothing wrong with two dimensional kind of military hard ass characters. You know, Predator is a great example of how to make a movie about badasses who don't even have two dimensions. Many of them have one dimension. Yeah, <laughs> but. but I felt like these characters are very, very shallow and aren't particularly well realized because, I mean, I guess you haven't really seen any of them do anything apart from, well, I guess like the the English guy gets beaten up by Tom Cruise, who does like a kind of blind ninja fight thing. But uh, yeah, they're they're, they're kind of, I feel like they want there to be some weight to their deaths in this scene and there aren't really any because I don't care about any of them. And I think, to be honest with you, 99% of action films have these moments that sort of insinuate you're meant to care about these characters, but you do not. Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm all for a noble sacrifice, but you have to actually make me care about the character first. Otherwise, like I'll, I'll, I'll use an example. Boromir. Like, yeah, exactly. Boromir is a great example, but I mean, so there's like there's, whenever I think of guys like directors and writers who are amazing at making me care about characters and then immediately killing them, I always think about Quentin Tarantino because he's mm. fantastic. So if you think of like, um like in Glorious Bastards, Michael um, Fassbender's character in that, literally he's mm-hmm. introduced in one scene, he gets 
the amazing um, underground bar scene and then he's dead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spoilers for <laughs> Inglorious Bastards for anyone who hasn't yeah. seen it. But, you know, that's that's what you can do with an actor sort of really performing at the top of their game in a good script. And unfortunately, they just don't have that here. It's And, and uh, so the sacrifices are just, they're just filling time, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, they, it is what it is. And they, they managed to get into the, the Louvre and they managed, yep. they managed to put plant the uh, mines um and when they explode well basically there's a there's a sort of tense moment where uh they they uh rita says to cage when we're neither of us are getting out of here you know yeah um and then they just they go off their separate ways and they sort of eventually get there and blow it up obviously they have a little kiss you gotta have a little kiss you know yeah like they just casually fall like 50 feet land on a car and then share a sexually charged embrace <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> even though she's only known him for about what twenty hours at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, she just knows. Sometimes you just know. You just know. Like if he says that you've done this thousands of times, like who? Yeah, <laughs> who's she to go? Oh God, there are some dark paths that this could go. Down. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, so so basically, then they actually destroy the Omega, yeah. um, and then twist it actually resets them back to the day before the day before. Yeah. And the Omega is still destroyed. And then it's the end. Yep. And they, they, they still, they're all still alive. He doesn't really know Rita, although it ends with him going, going uh, and, you know, manically laughing in her face. But <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> what, uh, what did you think about this whole reset at the end of the film? Well, uh, so I think one thing that I felt this movie really missed a trick on was uh, the moment where Cage drops the explosives into the Omega's mouth, I'm going to say. Yeah, um, mouth. And then he gets stabbed. And as he's dying, he kind of opens his hand to show that he's pulled the pins out of all the grenades. Yeah, now, really, my, really flamboyantly. Yeah, in my mind, it would have been a lot funnier if he'd have flipped off the Alpha that had, st <laughs> that had stabbed him there. Like, that was a perfect opportunity for him to be like, boom, there you go, see yeah. that. He gave him the finger. But, you know, maybe that would have changed the tone of the scene a little. Um, would have been this ending, though. I watched this movie with my partner, and she was not happy with this ending. And I have to be honest, like, I, I, you know, it's one of those endings where you can't think too hard about it. You just have to take the movie at its word. Um, and I'm not going to get into like plot holes and stuff like that because what's the plot hole? Well, there isn't really a plot hole, but I mean, you know, I don't want to get into like analyzing the minutiae of of the internal logic of the plot because it's it. Who cares? It's it like it's just the the fact it resets two days in the past. I feel like it hasn't really been established why that happened, and it just kind of oh, feels like a I can tell way. you why it happened <laughs> all right I, i've made a name on youtube as being the guy who can answer the unanswerable questions okay go on then i think that because so basically right every day at a certain time 6 a.m right just like groundhog day um they and that is the, the same time that cage wakes up by the way it's the same as groundhog day um 0600 every <laughs> day they uh they have a backup at that time the omega a backup Okay. When, when Cage had the stuff leak on his head, he took the data for that day, right? So then whenever it was finished and it was back in the Omega's hands, they, they reset to the previous backup, which was the day before. Okay. That makes sense. 
No, but they would be resetting to the, they'd still be resetting to the start of the current day, wouldn't they? I don't no. understand why they'd go to the one no, before. No, 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 because that's Cage's day. That's corrupted. That 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 backup is corrupted. <laughs> okay. That's that's in his body now. Okay, even though they get it back because uh, they don't get it back. They get back their ability, but they don't get back the backup. That's gone. That's gone forever. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah, okay, fine. I'll accept that, like, at face yeah. value. As a, as a, as, I mean, it, that sounds plausible. Um, yeah. it, I yeah, think it's one of those things you just can't think about too hard. Well, I've got, I've got the answer. Or think about out. it really hard, as, as you've done. Yeah, and, like, uh, and I've got, you know, I think I've come out with the, with the right answer, though. Yeah, sure. I will forever believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's fine. My, my, uh, the, the, the kind of writer in me it just thinks like, ah, they just wanted to have all the characters alive at the end so they could have a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> like, and they just work backwards from there. Yeah, they did an, they did an, uh, what was it, an anti Rogue One. Yes, yeah, like, which, um, yeah, it doesn't doesn't land quite as effectively as the ending to Rogue One. Although, you know, I have I have thoughts about like not all not all positive thoughts about that movie, but that ending is great. Um, but yeah, I I I feel like um, this it was it was a good ending to this. I thought like it's kind of bittersweet uh, because no one will ever know like that it was him who did it. I guess um, I'll be interested to see where they go with the sequel for this though. Whether it's still Tom Cruise. Yeah, I'd be interested in that too as well. And if like the aliens, what they just invade again, it'd be interesting to yeah, see. Yeah, they just do it again. And there's a there's some well, you can't have anything after Omega, so they screwed themselves with the Greek alphabet there, uh, or Greek. Is it num numbers? No, that's, alpha- the, no, that's the alphabet. Alpha, alpha Omega. Al- yeah, alpha Omega is Omega. in the alphabet. Okay. Alpha, fine. beta, gamma. But yes. um, basically, uh, William Cage. Uh, I was sort of having to think about the whole way through. I was kind of thinking about his hero's journey. So. If anyone's ever sat down to try and write a book or a film or short story, you're always sort of thinking about your hero's journey. And there is a well-conceived sort of rule system, I suppose, of a hero's journey. Um, but there is, a, there is a particular person that's credited to, but I, to be honest, off the top of my head, I can't remember. But um, so whatever he was... So the, the idea of the hero's journey is that you start off in your own ordinary world, you get a call to adventure... Um, yeah. You get taken into an, an unknown or a special type of world where it's, it's, it's out of your comfort zone. And then at the end, you sort of, you learn something and then you return back to your ordinary, ordinary world having changed. Right. And I remember when this film started and uh, Brendan Gleeson sends Tom Cruise on his way, I thought to myself, well, that's very, very directly just showing us like, okay, this is the hero's journey. You know, you don't, you, you don't want to go on this adventure, but you have to, off you go. And it was yeah. very like in the face. And I, the whole time I was thinking like, okay, so clearly he's going to gain a respect for the soldiers. He's going to gain a respect for the, the, you know, actually active combat when you need to do it, um, which he did. Um, and then I was like, okay, but that mean, is he going to eventually return to his same job? Like, he's, is he going to return? Because the idea of the hero's journey is that you return to the familiar place having learned something. Little yeah. did I know that at the end of the film, he was literally going to return to the yeah, same yeah. point in time. Yeah, he could could not more explicitly have returned <laughs> to to exactly where he started. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, just, no, it, yeah. it is. It's very well realized. This and it's got a really. It's a really kind of snappy script. Um, not necessarily in terms of 
the dialogue. I'm trying to think if there's any character that gets any standout dialogue. I think Emily Blunt probably gets some some bits that I really liked, and and there are some funny some funny lines. Although I don't know if they're ne- or the funny moments. I don't know if they're necessarily on the page or whether it's more the kind of chemistry between Emily Blunt and, and Tom Cruise that achieves those. Um, yeah, and also, also one of the best intros to a character ever, like that yoga pose. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She she is talking about how the job squad don't really get any kind of introduction to make their deaths meaningful emily blunt is kind of on the other end of that spectrum where it shows how easy it is to get it right if you really put your mind to it which is not to say uh, i suppose i shouldn't say easy how simple it is to get it right but you have to think about things like okay we're gonna have little news clips mentioning someone we're gonna have posters of them in the background and then when you turn up they're doing something really cool like pulling off a yoga pose that requires incredible strength to do and it's you know and she can actually do it yes yeah i I presume that was emily blunt in the wide shot doing that i've got no reason to believe it wasn't Mm -hmm. um but yeah so so her character is is probably uh outside of uh william cage probably the 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 most well fleshed out and you know it's it's great to see because because emily blunt is a phenomenal actress I, i i love her in pretty much everything that she's done um and the fact that that she she did this is uh, as resounding an endorsement of of the screenplay and the the process of making it as anything that i could i could think to say about it really yeah and i will say as well before watching this film i didn't i didn't picture emily blunt as an action star um yeah. even though i have seen films where she does do action in them before but the introduction of the character like as you say through the news uh, and then all of a sudden seeing her doing this yoga pose and all when she appeared on screen and started talking, I fully bought in that this is the hero of this army, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. So it was just, it was really well done. And um, apparently in the reshoots, she was actually like a couple of weeks pregnant. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Cause uh, apparently also it's a little funny story. I, I, so I saw, I think I read this in the IMDb trivia, which is pretty cool. Uh, apparently she was, uh, she was, she was pregnant. And so when they came back for the reshoots, she didn't do any of her own stunts. But she, oh, okay. She had done almost all of her stunts in the original, uh, you know, the first time they, uh, uh, what do you call it? What, the, the, the first shoot, like the first stage? The first of, shoot. Uh, there's shooting. a particular term, but I, I can't remember. can't remember. But uh, principal photography. Um, so during the principal photography, she did her own stunts. But when they came back, she didn't. Now, Tom Cruise, obviously, is someone who does all his own stunts all the time. So he yeah. asking her, like, what's going on? What's going on? And apparently she told him, that she's pregnant so emily blunt says that apart from her and her husband who is john krasinski yeah tom cruise was like the only other person in the world at that time he knew that she was pregnant <laughs> i like i can imagine like tom cruise just being like a real bother and not leaving her alone until she told him what, <laughs> what was <laughs> yeah. going on yeah come on just ju- just jump out this windscreen with me come on just yeah slam, yeah slam the- what's wrong with you just slam through the windscreen just just jump through the louvre like with me and land on this car yeah exactly yeah so awesome. i don't know where where the the sort of trope has come from that landing on a car is fine it, like there's loads of movies where like it's like tables in wrestling like the kind of the the, the system cinematic language is now such that like falling 100 feet and landing on a car it's kind of like it breaks your fall i really I really want someone to make a film where someone like skydives and their parachute doesn't work but then land on a car and they're okay <laughs> yeah, and they're fine yeah it's yeah. like oh thank god <laughs> <laughs> this this massive ball of metal and plastic was <laughs> was beneath me to break my fall 
Uh, it's yeah. Just, yeah, that's something that actually is all over the place. Like people just jumping out of windows onto cars. I, yeah. ne- I never actually stop to think, hang on. <laughs> Are cars bouncy? <laughs> yeah, they're like they're, the roofs of cars are made exclusively out of rubber and cotton. Right? Yeah. As a little, a little known fact. I don't know why, but the, you know what images I just put in my head about people jumping out of the windows onto cars? What? I have no idea. It just put me into the head in the film Happy Gilmore when the air conditioner falls out of the window and lands <laughs> on a woman. <laughs> mister, mister, get this off of me, mister. Yeah, it's uh, hilarious. That's a good movie. <laughs> that is a good movie. Ben, ben Stiller. Yeah, like I, I actually is Ben Stiller in that movie. I don't remember. Yeah, he's he's the, he's the care home guy, and he and he's like um, he's <laughs> anyway anyway he's like he's like running them like a sweatshop. He's making them make blankets that he sells. Anyway, we'll, I don't remember that at all from that movie. I'm wow. sure we'll do. I'm sure we'll do a podcast on uh, on Adam Sandler one day. But uh, yeah, oh, we we should do we should do the two faces of Adam Sandler. I'm sure people would like that because never has there been the, the the duality of man is captured in Adam Sandler's film career. Yeah, it really is. Like, and even at, like, it's, uh, well, I'm not going to get into it. Like, obviously, but he's very interesting. And obviously, me and you, uh, Conrad, are of the same generation. So we. You know, shamelessly or not shamelessly, I don't know. But we we grew up where Adam Sandler was actually a competent comedic voice in cinema. Like I remember enjoying Big Daddy. You know, I remember all these early films of Adam Sandler. You know, yeah, they they are all right. They, yeah. they're, they're they're good films. But uh, Nicky, yeah, Waterboy. Like there there is, and, and to be yeah. honest, like one of my favorite movies ever Billy is Madison. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, Punch Drunk Love by uh, Paul oh, Thomas yeah, Anderson. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, and Adam Sandler's amazing in that. Like, he's a good dramatic actor. He just, I think, he just can't be bothered like ninety percent of the time, to be honest. He just likes going to a, like a, 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 a an idyllic island with his mates for three months yeah, and shooting yeah. a film, like yeah, while he's shooting, on the beach. Shooting a movie in Disneyland or Hawaii and just getting to chill out and and make money because it fails and he's insured against that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so that was uh, Edge of Tomorrow uh, or Live Die Repeat, I suppose. We'll 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 live in wait. Um, and wait and wait and wait until we get live, die, repeat and repeat, which is the apparently the sequel coming out. Um, don't know what they're going to do with that, but uh, I'm looking forward to it nonetheless. Have they started shooting that yet, or is it uh, pre-production? Pre-production. Okay, yeah. So hopefully, I imagine they have a script. I wonder if Macquarie wrote wrote that or not. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's too many details about it yet, but um, uh, same director, so you never know. Nice. Um, but yeah, so do you have anything else to add on Edge, Edge of Tomorrow, Conrad? Um, no, just like well, if, if people listening have not watched it, I encourage them to do so. It is a it is a good movie. I don't mm. I, I hadn't really thought this far ahead in this. Whether are we are we going to like rate these at the end of this or we yeah, just like I'm say... happy with that. We can we can rate them and then eventually there might be like a spreadsheet of all our ratings. You know. All right. Well, are we doing a star system and are we doing it out of ten or out of five? I'm going to leave that up. I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not really a star rating person. I will do it just for the sake of this. Um, I just, I'm sort of, I'm sort of in the Mark Commode mold where I just like sort of saying whether I liked it and what I liked about it and what I didn't right. like about it. Having said that, I will rate it because why not? But having yeah, said I mean, that, uh... having said that, don't judge mine and Conrad's ratings against each other. You need to wait and see what we rate other films to sort of put it in context of what we thought of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm I mean... a harsh rater out of 10. That's all I'll say. 
Well, I, I, I do my, like, I'm just going on Letterboxd because that's what I do all my stuff on. So my, like, I do like out of five stars. So, I mean, if we were doing it out of five, okay. I, I, I rated this one as, I don't do half stars because half stars are for cowards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I rated this as a four star movie. So it's, it's pretty damn good. Okay. Um, I'll tell you where I am at it. <laughs> oh no, it's going to be, it's going to be different. I already know that. We're not doing half stars. Okay. You listen. If you want to do a half star, I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm just saying that they. Of course you are. You just said I'd be a coward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So I'm going to go three star. Okay, that's reasonable. Um, and I think if it was out of ten, I would have given it maybe a seven. Probably, yeah. to be honest with you, I still would have went for a six. Because let's let's be honest, Conrad. I'm a teacher. Six out of out of ten or sixty percent is a pass. Yes. And in, in my yeah. mind, a good film that did what it wanted to do, but wasn't amazing, but it did what it would do. I enjoyed it. That's a pass. So this is a six out of 10 film or a three star, I suppose. We'll go with the star system. Three star for me. Yeah, see, the reason I don't like the 10-point system is I find, for the most part, the numbers 2 to 5 might as well not exist in a 10-star in a system. Like Everything is yeah. either a 6 and above or, or a 1 or a 2. That's, um, yes, yes, that's why some people are going to disagree with my ratings. Because if, if, if a film... See, like if, this is my six star, uh, if this is my 6 out of 10 or my 3-star film, you can imagine a film that I still kind of enjoyed but I didn't think was a very good film. I'm going to put it like a 1-star a or a 2-star or a 3 out of 10. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's meritless. Merit, the only thing that's meritless to me is a zero or a one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, there we go. We've got our completely um, categorical and objectively correct <laughs> reviews of this movie on paper now. So I look forward to everyone agreeing with those. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so um, let us know if there's any other films you want us to cover, any other TV shows you want us to cover. We do plan on doing more of these one-off episodes as we go. We're not always going to have to do the question and answers videos. So we want to try and get something out on a Monday and something out on a Saturday. So it really opens up putting these, this, these, these sort of one-off episodes in. Um, if you're someone who's really stuck it out to the end listening to this and, you're still, and you haven't actually seen Edge of Tomorrow, maybe you don't want to see it now because you know the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry for spoiling the movie for you. Yeah, but I, I, I would check it out. It's a really good fun film. Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, I stand by what I said at the beginning. It's a good ripping yarn. Um, Tom Cruise is a decent lead. Emily Blunt is amazing. And it's worth your time, I would say. Yeah, and on a gen more general note about the After Dark podcast, if you're someone like me, you're looking at the title of this episode and the thumbnail of this episode, and you're really annoyed that we, <laughs> that we use the number 10 for this episode and not for the final episode of season one of Dark. But you know what? We thought we'd disappoint you early. So, but at, su at some point, we're gonna have, we were gonna get out. The numbering was gonna get out of sync because we were gonna do something weird, and yeah. it would, it would throw us off track. So we might as well do it early and disappoint everyone now. Yeah, and let's be honest. If we continue just having the main episode numbers be for the dark stuff, well, then that would mean that the first episode of season two would have been episode eleven, and the first episode of season three would have been episode nineteen. So that doesn't make any sense anyway. So it does, it does, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, and also, this isn't a supplemental episode. This is a standalone episode on its own and it had to be a full episode number 10 sorry if you it annoys you because <laughs> like you're, it, it you're arguing against this person who we, we don't know yet <laughs> no i'm arguing the thing is conrad i'm arguing against myself because oh, okay. i i know that if i listen to a podcast and they did this i would be really annoyed <laughs> <laughs> well yeah there you go would eat theoretical theoretical anthony how yeah. dare you have that opinion <laughs> exactly 
Right, okay. Um, catch us on Monday for the episode 10 season finale. We've already recorded that. Do you want to give anyone like a 20-second sneak peek, Conrad? Um, ugh, stuff goes badly wrong in that. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> Yeah. Nice, nice one, uh, nice one, old Jonas. Is all, is all I'll say. Oh, he knows who it is now. Amazing. Okay, catch us on Monday. Thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the After Dark podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. <laughs>